Welcome to Data Humanized, presented by Correlation One. In each episode, we bring you the unique perspective of enterprise leaders at the intersection of technology and humanity who are leading cultural transformation through the power of data. You'll also hear the real life stories of learners who have graduated from the Data Skills for All program and are embarking on new career pathways, creating a more inclusive, collaborative, and effective workplace. How does data storytelling impact our ability to understand data and enable action? What impact does good storytelling have on the brain? And how can organizations harness that power to enable actionable decision-making? In this episode of Data Humanize, we'll explore these questions with Dr. Carmen Simon, author and chief science officer at Corporate Visions. Please enjoy my conversation with Carmen. Okay, Carmen, welcome to Data Humanized. Thank you so much for inviting me. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, thank you. So, um, Carmen, you're the author of a fantastic book, uh, Impossible to Ignore, and there's another one coming as well. Um, and you're the chief science officer who works with enterprise companies. Can you describe your work and the role of your research in that work? Yes, I can. The uh, work that I do is dedicated to anyone with a brain. We enjoy studying the brain because everybody in your audience has one. Uh, sometimes you might not see the evidence of it, but it's true. Everybody has a brain. It's important to understand how it works. As a cognitive neuroscientist, I specialize in uh, researching memory and what people remember after, especially 48 hours from being exposed to a stimulation, like um, a sales presentation, for instance, or a corporate website or a video. And as a chief science officer, I conduct a lot of neuroscience research in the B2B space primarily. So we look to investigate the buyer's brain and how it builds attention, how it builds uh, cognitive workload, or sometimes the lack of ideally, how it builds fatigue sometimes, motivation toward a stimulus, how much it likes what it sees, and um, ultimately what it remembers. How did you get into this carbon? What drives this interest in uh, the intersection of neuroscience and science and what people remember in presentations and enterprise applications of it? It's a fascinating field and I love, love what you do, but how did you get into it? From a business perspective, I got into this because we recognize that as scientists, especially if you work in neuroscience, the brain doesn't make any decisions based on what it forgets. It makes decisions based on what it remembers. So if you are looking for methods in which to increase your commercial value and to have revenue growth, everybody loves to uh, seek that these days, you can only do so if you leave some memory traces on somebody's brain. Personally speaking, and I'm sure that I can, anybody can, can relate to this, we recognize how fallible memory is because obviously in theory, it's very easy to say, Yes, let's create something memorable because then we increase the chances of decision being formed in our favor. But we forget our lives almost as quickly as uh, as we live them. I remember a while back. Do you remember that uh, trilogy, the uh, the girl with the dragon tra tattoo and a few others? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I had watched the Swedish version and uh, you get very close to the to the main character and you see her in all her, her darkness and, and brilliance. And at some point in the movie, the girl with the dragon tattoo, she's sitting on a windowsill overlooking Stockholm. And it's just a beautiful sunset. It was a 21 room apartment that she had bought with some illicit money or something. And I thought, I must see what she saw, even though this is fiction. So it's fiction. So I went from San Francisco to Stockholm and just had a marvelous time. And I really meant to see 
all those they, and if you go to stockholm by the way you can do a dragon uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo tour and i did everything but so i'm in an uber going back to san francisco to go back to the airport to return to san francisco i'm thinking there was something else that i came here to see <laughs> so imagine i thought if we forget our personal lives almost as quickly as we live them imagine customers customers will come to hear your solution customer will come to see your sales presentation after 48 hours, most of that information is just gone. It's great to know that PhDs also in neuroscience also forget things. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you apply this to data storytelling? Of course, we're doing a series on data storytelling and the podcast is data humanized. So it's really all about that intersection between information and the human's creativity. So what's your take on data storytelling as a discipline? So let's look at the word storytelling, first of all, and mix it with this notion of memory. From my perspective, you can only claim that you've delivered a good story, being a, a data story that we can even call it that, if it's memorable. And um, I remember doing study a, a few years back where I was asking the question, are all stories memorable? And um, unfortunately, the answer is no. Like people can forget stories just like they forget uh, anything else. First of all, stories in general are not um, occurring in nature. We must be humbled by that. Stories are just a, a man-made concept to try to put some uh, meaning into the meaningless and some order into chaos. And um, for evolutionary purposes, obviously, we, we need to do that. And the moment we make up those things those still do not guarantee memory. So then the subsequent question I asked was, what makes a story memorable? And I think maybe a myth that we can debunk is when people use the phrase data storytelling, it's almost implying that you can have some other kind of stories. And I would advocate that all good stories include some data. Like in, in a good story, at some point you will know what took place. You'll have some facts that uh, are part of that. And sometimes mm -hmm. if people insist only on the facts or only on the data, it's not just, it's not a story, but it's just a zoomed in story. To make it a story, it's very likely that you will have to have some sort of context. You'll have to have some uh, perceptive elements, like what am I seeing? And is it the same as thing that what you're seeing? Do things happen across time? You cannot expect to tell a good story unless there is some action that unfolds across time. And most stories, would you agree, in business kind of miss that uh, that element. Nothing really happens in many business. Let's call them stories that uh, that high here. It's uh, it's almost like waiting for a Godot, you know, where nothing really happens. <laughs> is that your experience as well? Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, for sure. I mean, it's 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 always a challenge to, because in the way stories are, they are subjective, right? You know, it's kind of like art, you know, you see art, is it good art? Is it bad art? It's subjective, right? So, uh, but I do love how you apply science to it um, uh, because I do think that there are so many things that you can um, apply that are well-researched to make, um, you know, a story better, uh, which which is what I was really interested in. One of, one of the things I love about, um, from your book, uh, Impossible to Ignore, is the notion of starting with the importance of linking to a human need and finding the what is your 10% uh, message that helps 
create stories that stick. I, I, I always love that idea. Can you talk about that a little bit, about the importance of finding that human, the very human need and the and the 10 percent rule? Yeah, the the ten uh, percent rule. Let's call that the a metaphorical ten percent. Started from this notion that I'm observing that after forty eight hours, the business brain will forget about ninety percent of the content that it's exposed to, and um, I'm using these as metaphorical numbers just because sometimes I'll notice that people will forget ninety five percent. Sometimes they might forget. Unfortunately, 100%. I've seen that happen. Sometimes they might, um, may remember a little bit more. I think the largest percentage that I've seen as memorable after 48 hours has been around the 21% mark. So we just know that after 48 hours, what stays in mind for a prolonged amount is, uh, is a very small percentage from what was presented. So therefore, the metaphorical 10%. But what I was also noticing is that not only do people forget a lot, but the little they remember, that 10% is random, meaning that if I'm not careful, you might take away from a conversation or a sales presentation one 10% message, what you thought was the essence. And then if I talk to somebody else, they would have extracted something else. And if I talk to somebody else, they would have extracted something else. And that's detrimental because in these days, the buying group is getting larger. Are you noticing the same thing? Like you're not just selling to one person, you're selling it to five, six, mm-hmm. As many as 11 people I'm hearing are part of the buying decision group that have to say yes to you and no one else. So what I'm proposing is that you create unified memories so that when all those 11 people go away, if somebody were to call them and say, what did you extract from that presentation or from that artifact? Most of them say the exact same thing that was important to you. So if you're looking at storytelling, if you're looking at compiling some data to tell your story, one of the strongest questions that you can ever ask is, what do I want people to take away from this and say it back to me or others as they sell on my behalf after 48 hours or longer? I love it. Yeah, it reminds me, I went to a bank once to present to a a decision-making committee and there were 35 people in the room. And after the presentation, I asked, who's on the committee? And they said, we all are. So, uh, yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's so interesting to think about, okay, what is that core message that you want to repeat over and over? And there's some science to that, too, about how to present. I think you've talked about the notion of continuously cueing. You know, another one of my favorite myth-busting things that you have, Carmen, is um, the myth of the tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. You, you say that that's, uh, uh, there's a little different way of thinking about that when you're presenting, right? Yes, for, for sure. So that one is called the uh, the T3 principle. And um, I had a hunch that it was not sufficient for you to be in charge of what you want people to take away from your story. And um, the reason it's not sufficient is because there is no secret. Repetition is the mother of memory. And as you look at that T3 principle, you're only implying that you're repeating something twice that is essential in the beginning when you announce it, and then you do a, lot, a whole lot of telling. And then in the end, you might summarize it. First of all, even that principle is not abided by faithfully because are you noticing this, that in the end of a presentation, people, they don't just summarize, but they start to sneak in a few extra things that they may have run out of time. And now they just want to uh, present them there at the end really, really fast. What works better is through your story, if you identify this 10% message, and usually we would advocate for no more than three or four um, points max, then repeat those through, let's just say, a length of 20 minutes, you would have to have at least a six times repetition of the same message. 
said and shown exactly the same way in order for you to start taking control of what people extract from your story and not leave that to chance. Yeah, I love it. I always have this one in mind when I'm you know, doing a presentation and sort of, uh, you know, constantly, you know, repeating the same piece of information over and over and and also queuing you've done it you even do it in our conversations right you say um do you find that as well which i think wakes up uh, maybe a passive listener even though i'm very actively listening to you right that's a another form of queuing isn't it it is a, a form of queuing and um even for our own purposes here if we want to practice what we preach if we identify the mantra for our conversation as let's just call it control your 10 percent then one of the first practical guidelines would be to say repeated frequently and frequently i'm noticing that a minimum of six per 20 minute um, like i said sometimes even more i even did a study where i wanted to see what would happen if in a 20 minute presentation i would repeat the 10 percent message 24 times now one person came back after 48 hours and said you know that one thing there was one thing that kept coming up again and again and again and I suspect the reason why people don't observe that much repetition is because it takes a while for the brain to even observe the pattern, because that's what you're doing with this repetition. You're starting to show to somebody else's brain who's not familiar with your story that indeed there is a pattern through it. And what would happen in real life is that you're showing people something once, and then you show it again, 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 and maybe then they see it for the first time. And it's, it's rightfully so because the brain comes in and out of conversations, uh, distractions and multitasking are ripe throughout the business field. That's, a, that's not a foreign <laughs> item to us. And um, that's why you have to have enough repetition. And when you don't, you have to develop this neuroscientific humility that um, the brain forgets uh, very fast and, uh, and a lot. Yeah, I'm guessing that people might remember the 10% rule here since we've said 10%, 10%, 10%, about uh, 10 or ten times or so. So I think that uh, maybe that's a, a little test that people can play with themselves if they're listening um, to this part of it. So um, we'll talk about, you know, the role of uh, storytelling and data literacy. You know, this is, um, we like to talk about the, you know, data humanize, which is, try to bring these skills and awareness to everyone because data, of course, is so important in just about every job um, now. So how do you, how does your research and work help enterprises develop internal uh, data literacy, storytelling and decision-making skills? So when you tell a story well, and um, you want to make it part of that, uh, that 10% message, it has to have some, some elements in order to build memory traces on somebody else's mind. So to me, if you're claiming to be to have some data literacy, part of that is you're asking and hopefully answering the question, how do I share this data in such a way that people act on it and people cannot act on it unless they remember it. And to remember it, you can wrap it as a, as a story. And for a story to be memorable, it has to have a combination of these perceptive, cognitive and affective elements. For perception, we already alluded to some practical guidelines in the sense of make sure that there is a very vivid context in which you place your data. It was perhaps a hospital room. Uh, let's just say that you're working in an industry that um, improves uh, network connections for 
a hospital in such a way that um, if a doctor is performing surgery and another one is watching a, a movie in the other room, uh, they're not interfering with uh, with each other. But see, the moment that I'm mentioning this, you're already in a hospital, you're already in a surgery room, you're all already uh, in the uh, in the lounge area. So I'm describing a context that is very vivid. That's quite often missing from uh, from business stories. The reason it's instrumental is because context is not what we remember; it is how we remember. So, for example, if I asked you, "Do you remember what you were wearing two days ago?" Would you know? Accurately, <laughs> even if the, I can't remember what I was wearing this morning, so no. <laughs> even if the answer is no, I guarantee that what happened in your mind and in, in our listeners' mind, perhaps if they were trying to answer the question for themselves, is where what was it two days ago? First of all, but then where was I two days ago? And the moment that you place yourself in a context, now some other memories are starting to become a little bit more alive and a little bit more vivid. So that's the reason why you always want to describe a context that people can uh, can picture accurately. Um, uh, for some reason, I'm uh, I'm hooked on uh, on the Golden Girls. Are you familiar with the Golden Girls? <laughs> <laughs> if you're talking about good storytelling, no better storyteller than uh, than Sophia. Sophia is the older of the four, and listen to how Sophia starts her her stories. She would say, "Picture it. It's Sicily. It's 1929." And the poor peasant girl is running down the street and she recognizes that she has no pepperoni to feed her family or whatever she says. But suddenly, I mean, we're in there. It's, this is Sicily. This is 1929. We, we know it. And see, data is still part of stories because we know it's 1929 or know it's Sicily. But there is a vivid context. And then from then on, things, things start unfolding across time. Action across time has to be one of the elements that contributes to this, uh, this perceptive uh, pillar for stories. I'll go more in, into the cognitive and the affective, but I'll pause here to see if you have any reactions because I think. Well, uh, yeah, no, I, I, my, my takeaway from this is that the best way to spread data literacy is to watch Golden Girls. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> At least. No, but I love yeah, but I, I mean, I love the, the, the notion and, and these are very simple tips for people, right? To become a better storyteller, use vivid yeah. details. This actually comes, this is something you talk about in your book quite a bit, you know, um, of uh, sight, sound, color, even if you're not like maybe singing a song, right? Just try to call up in people's minds, like a sound that they might've heard that triggers uh, a memory, right? I mean, I think I've got this, got this right from my Oh, for sure. And, uh, and out of all the senses, you cannot go wrong with uh, with visuals. And uh, the reason I'm saying this is because we can debunk another myth. I'm sure that people hear a lot of this notion of uh, learning styles. Like some people are more visual, they will say, and some people are mm -hmm. more auditory, kinesthetic, whatever. Be skeptical about those. And, and the way that you know to be skeptical about learning styles is if you go and search for learning styles, you'll find some sites that will quote, five learning styles and some that will quote 10. There's some articles out there that will quote as many as 70 <laughs> learning styles. So you know there is no such thing. What we know from, from science is this, the way that you start learning by the world and remembering what is essential is through your receptors. The, the, we have enough of them to take in the world. And 60 to 70% of those body receptors 
are visual. So for people who do not have any kind of impairments, you cannot go wrong with visuals. They may have developed some preferences, like people might say, mm, I'd like to listen to a book versus read a book. But if you were to do tests and see which one they would remember more from and something that they would act upon, it's um, it's still the visual one. And even the, some um, of the most successful audiobooks, they are successful because they build mental pictures in your mind. So as a data scientist, as a person who works with, uh, with a lot of uh, numbers and figures and aspire at telling stories, always ask the question, even if I'm not showing people anything, you don't always have to have slides or, or images, do I at least create some sentences, some words that build mental pictures in, in people's minds? Like if I said to you, imagine that climbing Mount Everest is like um, running on a treadmill, breathing through a straw. See, I don't have to show you a PowerPoint slide about this. I'm just simply using words that enable your brain to see what I see. I love it. So you're painting a visual metaphor in my head with words, um, which exactly. definitely worked. And, uh, and sometimes in, in business content, we tend to stay so abstract. And I'm, I'm not saying that abstracts don't have their place because obviously the audiences that you're talking about are highly intelligent, also talking to highly intelligent audiences, and they're capable of abstracts. But sometimes we talk too much in conclusions without showing some context around how those conclusions were reached. And um, having that's when you when you force yourself to, to, sp to speak beyond conclusions, that's when you might have uh, this beautiful spot of enabling the audience to see what you see. Always ask this question, can they see what I see? When you say beyond conclusions, you mean the context, the, 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 how the lead up to comparing it to something that they, you know, maybe this is also about your identifying the need, right? Like establishing that maybe visually or with a metaphor first before jumping right to the conclusion, like buy my product or something like that you know, or something, you know, or, or, sure. or I think, you know, data and you know, data engineers are so excited. They found something, right? It's like, oh, I got to tell you the, this great thing that I found, but you know, you kind of skip all of the. Uh, it's almost like you go to the back of the book and just read the last few pages of it um, instead of, you know, telling the whole story, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, starting with uh, with a conclusion, which obviously could you be um, a hook in in some way. So mm -hmm. whether you start with the abstract or you finish with the abstract, that's fine. But make sure that at some point the brain sees the context around that abstract. Like I was looking at this uh, company's presentation the other day, and they were talking about uh, low latency and um, ingesting data super fast. And um, those are, are fairly abstract words. Like, what do you see if I say low latency? <laughs> what does the brain see? If I say ingesting data, already I'm alluding to somewhat of a metaphor like ingestion, but those are not things that are easy to see. But then if you connect them to, for instance, in this case, a customer example, like for instance, uh, Uber is taking advantage of some AI solutions that indeed have low latency. And that's why you can see where your driver is now and not 30 minutes from now. And see the moment that I mentioned Uber, the moment, the moment that I mentioned a driver, the moment, moment I mentioned even just alluding to the app, already there is something that you can see and grasp a lot more tangibly versus just simply about speaking about words that don't have a connection to the physical world. So how do people, what's your advice? Because you, what I love about your research is that you apply it to the enterprise, right? Um, and of course, there's people that listen to this that are trying to figure out ways to be better storytellers or do a better job at work. What's your advice for people that are trying to become better storytellers at work? We already got Watch the Golden Girls. 
but what else do you give people advice? To do? Yes, we started with a control your temper. So first of all, if you know what they must remember, they're more likely to remember it because if it's nebulous to you, it will be nebulous to them. Clear to you, clear to them. Then we said for a good story, make sure that you have the perceptual pillar covered, meaning that it's very clear that there is a context around uh, your data and that context is vivid in people's minds. So it's very, very likely appealing to their senses, especially to the visual sense. And also make sure that you're mentioning things that unfold across time. So first we may have done this. So people say, let us tell, tell our story. Well, so what happened? So first this happened and then this other thing took place. And then that was followed by this. Because in most stories, things do not unfold across time. It's just data after data after data. And it's conclusion after conclusion after conclusion. And most of those are fairly abstract. So no wonder people switch off very quickly because it just doesn't feel like a narrative. It's just a zoomed in story only around uh, the factual piece. If we move into the cognitive pillar, sure, facts are still part of, uh, part of stories. But for cognition, what I'm noticing more and more is how much do we want to tax that cognition? And um, we shouldn't always go for this uh, notion of cognitive ease, like really make it easy on the brain. Or I feel like sometimes we're babying people's brains too much. It's possible to tax cognition as long as you're rewarded in some way. So for instance, some of the research that I've done recently has been asking the question, what happens when you share with the brain complex stories? Because stories of today are not the simple kind. <laughs> Our world is not getting any simpler. It is getting more complex. And I was curious to know, would it make a difference if I shared with you something that stayed on the surface because it's possible to tell a story that is fairly superficial? Or what would happen if in that story I start elaborating and I go one level deeper and one level deeper yet? The content I had chosen for that experiment was something related to uh, cybersecurity. And it was cybersecurity that I know you're very familiar with in terms of IT and OT, so information technology and operational technology. So for group one, we stayed on the surface and only presented some challenges, invoked the human need, like uh, you're reminding us. And then we presented the solution that had uh, three, some three components. And then for group two, we took it far. Like we said, this is what we mean for IT. When you're talking about OT, this is what we mean. And we gave some very technical um, ex explanations. And indeed, the complex stimulus won across the board. And I went to nine cultures to, uh, to do this study. And I found no statistically significant differences in terms of cognition for a complex versus, uh, versus simple stimulus. The only difference was for cognition was in this notion of cognitive workload in the sense that uh, the, what was more taxing was the simple stimulus. <laughs> to the point where people couldn't really make sense of things. So the beauty about storytelling, and I'm glad that you're doing a, a series on this, is that if you know how to elaborate and actually add some extra layers, not stay on the surface, and manage complexity well for the brain, you are going to do much better than staying superficial. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, the experience I have often is when I'm reading something that's just full of hyperbole, right? And the hyperbole, you know, so I, I know somebody is trying to just keep it simple, but yeah. maybe maybe the phrase should be keep it complicated, but keep it organized and make sure yes. you stay. Like to me, almost that ten percent rule is is almost your tour guide. Like if you can keep if you're going through something very complicated, if you keep reiterating the main points, um, then you're sort of um, you know filling them in with the the richness of it through the complex story. It sounds that's what it sounds like you're saying. 
Yes, I think you're you're capturing the essence just right. And uh, and the phrase that I'd like to to use for this, and also a practical guideline, is to make friends with fractals. I'm sure many of our audience members uh, come from the technical field and they're very familiar with flat fractals. And you can see them all around us. Like if you look at a tree, you would notice that the properties of the, let's call it the main tree, the father tree, are the same properties that a branch would have and the same properties that even a smaller branch would have. So fractals would be these systems that maintain their properties at any level of magnification. If you go to the grocery store, you might see a a head of cauliflower. Pay attention next time because a small head of uh, of, uh, cauliflower has the exact same properties as the bigger head of cauliflower. And for a business presentation that includes a lot of data, for example, and um, a lot of aspects about your solution, you can abide by this very easily because you establish your 10% message and that's the little baby cauliflower. And then you start elaborating around that and you come back to the core and you elaborate around that a little bit more so that it's cauliflower all the way down. Those properties would not have changed. And the beauty around that is if you present for two minutes, for 20 minutes or for 20 hours, it's still cauliflower all the way down. <laughs> you know, I gotta re- I'm looking forward to listening back on this because it's also an object lesson on how to do it, right? Like I'm thinking cauliflower now when I'm thinking stories, <laughs> right? I mean, fractals are a bit of an abstract uh, idea, but cauliflower, yes. got it. Yes. So yes. Uh, cauliflower story is yet another great, um, I can't wait to summarize this episode. So talk about um, maybe some really pragmatic examples that you found of where storytelling you know, where a great story has made a business impact, right? Now shifting it into the the real um, enterprise applications of story. So I think maybe an example and also what are the habits of companies that sort of systematically get this right? Because um, one of our other guests was talking about how, you know, storytelling isn't really a discipline that gets hired in the enterprise. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's one of these, I guess you call it a soft skill, but um, so I'd love to hear your take on some real concrete examples of it providing business ROI and uh, and what does it take to get those kind of skills to scale? Yeah, let's, uh, let's think of some uh, concrete examples of stories and uh, to ease the pressure, you don't always have to tell a story that is uh, Hollywood-like and would require a script writer to, to get it right. You could obviously use the uh, approach of the entire sequence in a customer conversation or perhaps a sales presentation feel like a story, but an even easier approach would be to associate just some points within your sequence that are now wrapped within some sort of an anecdote that has these components that I'm mentioning. So, so far we mentioned the perceptive pillar, meaning that you're alluding to the senses, the context is clear, there's action across time, the cognition, which of course you would have the facts and making sure that those facts are, are easily assimilated even if they're complex. Of course, you would have the affective pillar, which means that you have to have some emotions in order for people to uh, to remember something later on. The stronger the emotion, the more likely the memory. And I'll give an example of that. So in an experiment that I conducted, um, I was uh, allowed to use uh, a presentation from uh, Exactly. I'm sure that uh, many of our listeners are familiar with the company Exactly. They create a platform that enables sellers to monitor their quota a little bit more easily. And they believe in incentivizing your your sales force just so because that will then have good consequences on the rest of the company. Happy sellers, happy company and uh, increased revenue. 
And uh, in this experiment, I was asking the question, what's the difference in the buyer's brain if somebody approaches you face-to-face, -face, virtually, like we're doing right now, over the phone, because just in the, in the uh, a context of advanced technologies, the phone is not dead. People are still picking up the phone and, and calling customers. And also a hybrid methodology, which is uh, more popular these days, because sometimes you might be at the same location with a seller and some other people are calling in. The hybrid, I had a hunch that might not be so successful because uh, people do not have comparable experiences. Like it's one thing to be face to face with somebody, but now you have this virtual presence that's uh, a bit more uh, more nebulous and ghost like. And I was uh, intrigued because my hypothesis was that the face to face was going to win. Would, would that have been your your guess as well? That face to face. Was sure. Good? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's the, it's the old adage of sales. You know, you gotta be. You gotta get on a plane. You gotta be. You know, face to face. Gotta, gotta be right there. And um, to answer your question in terms of what is a success uh, a successful use case for for a story, we found cognitively speaking no statistically significant differences between the four modalities. In a moment, I'll say that there will be some that um, have. Um, perform better than others. But that surprised me because that meant that if we looked back at the script and what the exactly sales presentation included, why did that perform so well over the phone, for instance? Because we used slides in the other three modalities. There were no slides over the phone. So then we went back to the script. And um, in the beginning of the presentation, the presenter, the seller is um, of the platform is sharing the story. And he says, imagine that you have a house and you want to sell it for a million dollars. And imagine that you're now hiring a real estate agent. And of course, that real estate agent is going to get 3% of your, uh, your sales price. And that agent, after a week, comes and says, I can sell your house for $900,000. Now, you as a homeowner have a choice because you would have been out for quite a bit of money. That seller is going to now make his, uh, his commission. And if that seller, if that agent waits for another month or so, their commission is not going to go that much higher, but you will have been out for a much larger amount of money. So now you're recognizing that there are competing interests between the homeowner and the real estate agent. One is really motivated to sell really fast. The other one might not be. And he goes on to say that the same uh, competing interests exist in, uh, in enterprises as well, where the company might have some interests, the employees have some interests, and those two are not aligned, exactly aligned, then some negative consequences are, are happening. And notice how as I'm sharing this story, it would have been fairly easy for people to listen to it over the phone and not necessarily had to have seen the slides. Because of what we're talking about earlier, these stories build mental pictures in your in your audience's minds. So the practical application for this is that anybody listening or, or watching this, if you are scrutinizing your own content and you're thinking, if I had to present this over the phone to somebody, would they extract a strong message out of this so that it keeps the story going? Because what we're noticing as people are listening or viewing some of the slides around this, then it kept them going for the rest. And in this case, the modality really didn't matter whether I was face to face or I was over the phone. The story carried the things through. I'll pause here for a moment to see if you have uh, any reactions. Uh, to I, I mean, I love these observations. When I, years ago, I was doing a presentation at some conference and the, of course, as, as, as happens, the projector broke. Right. And I had no, no slides. And they said they just said, can you get up there and just talk? And <laughs> I mean, that's not the time to practice. But it was a good exercise for me because from that point on, 
whenever I had a presentation, I would um, actually make sure I could present it by simply talking about it. But that puts a lot more burden on you to think oh, yes. about these kinds of ideas, right? You know, you can't rely on the visual always, and nor I would imagine you would recommend you do rely on the visual based on what you just said. Well, the good news is that the visual doesn't always have to come from something physical. And I mean, obviously, PowerPoint slides are still, still pixels, but it's something concrete. But if you discipline yourself to know how to carry the content without any support, and um, if that can work just as easily over the phone, then you're already in a good spot. And you know that, that you started your journey toward uh, storytelling. And uh, the medium that performed the, the worst, by the way, in terms of affective variables, such as valence, meaning how much people enjoyed the experience, and arousal, meaning how alert and awake they were during that experience, was a hybrid method. So I would still recommend that if you had the choice, do avoid that. I was surprised that the medium that performed the best was for an introductory sales presentation was, in fact, the virtual medium. And um, from that study, I was concluding that if you tell stories well, like that was uh, one example, then of course you can manage through any modality. But if you want to take it a step further, create your introductory sales overview to be virtual and then earn that secondary face-to-face -face meeting, which indeed had some advantages in terms of people remembering some nuances from the platform and also an advantage of people enjoying a little bit more this, uh, what we would call at Core Provisions, the, uh, the white change story. Because you see, when you're thinking about your stories, not all of them are also created equal in the sense of if you're approaching new customers versus approaching existing customers. So for a new customer, we would say start with a white change story first, because unless they have that, it will be very difficult for them to believe in the why you story. Can you talk about the why change? Are there any tips or guidelines about how, since I'm actually building a presentation like this right now, <laughs> um, I mean, I presume that it would be, again, sort of identify the 10%, the, the, the real need, but the why change is there, um, is that just another example of being, you know, kind of draw a picture vividly of what the world would look like maybe um, if you didn't change or if you do change? How, how do you think about that establishing uh, idea in a good motivating presentation? Yeah, definitely on the on the right track for, for that. So a framework that we would recommend for the why change story would be to obviously identify some trends and challenges. Those already, if you do a good job, you will be invoking the senses uh, meaning that you'll be establishing some sort of physical context that people can uh, can see. And once you identify trends and challenges, you might be able to say, unless you cater to these, then there are, might be some negative consequences. But mm -hmm. what is mandatory in a white change story is that third pillar that we're alluding to for storytelling, which is the affective one, the emotion has to be very strong. Often that emotion comes from identifying contrast that is very sharp between what is and what could be. So as you're building that vision for the future that you're alluding to, make sure that people can see the contrast. Sometimes we see, we, th we think that we're so differentiated from the competition, but really the brain is not capable for, for perceiving that contrast. I, as scientists, we love numbers. So when I say, well, how large should the contrast be? I want to offer our audience a 30% contrast. So for instance, if you came to our lab and we wanted to make sure that you distinguish between sounds, 
the way that you'll be able to distinguish between them is if one sound was at least 30% louder than another sound, or if a distance was at least 30% bigger than another distance or length of a line. So I want to challenge all of us to think if we want to build some contrast in people's minds as to why change from your status quo to what could be, can they perceive your 30% difference? And I hope the answer is, uh, is yes. And also what's important in terms of emotion for that one why change story is to build in people's minds a pivot point, meaning that you thought the bigger problem was this, but in fact, the problem is this other thing that you may have not even considered. Like I'm reminded of this uh, person's story that uh, he likes to share where he said he had a, a very uh, intriguing mushroom invasion in his backyard. And he was looking for everything, for all sorts of uh, things to spray, for all sorts of people to come and just take care of these mushrooms until somebody finally came and he said to him, you know, you don't have a, a mushroom problem, you have a moisture problem. And then he thought, oh, I would have never thought of it that way. So ideally, in your why change story, you could tell a customer, you thought these are the trends and challenges. Yeah, sure. Many people think so. You think this is the biggest problem. What you may not be aware of is this, this other important thing. You tackle that, then the rest of the story is going to unfold favorably. And of course, subtly you're saying, guess who is going to help you cater to that unforeseen need? It is our, our solution. So therefore, transitioning into the why you story. Yeah, then it's time for why your product is great, right? Yes, um, yes. I, love, I, love, I love the setup, and I love you. You know, you often talk about MythBusters, which I think is a good way to sort of signal that, hey, you know, you might think this, but you actually, you know, it's that. Uh, exactly. Zig with a, a Zach. Talk about, yes. um, you know, how do you how do you collect this? That is fascinating to me, and sometimes it's a little scary. I've seen pictures of, you know, electrodes and uh, picking up brain signals. Um, but how do you get this data, and how do you test? Because you've you've cited some amazing research, and um, I always I always love it when people have actual data to talk about using data to present about data. I'm not sure if that's a, a fractal, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, talk about your collection testing scientific technique. I think that's fascinating. The way we conduct these studies is to um, capture four signals. And um, I conduct about 10 to 12 studies per year. And um, I primarily invite B2B participants because we then want to generalize the findings to a B2B audience. And um, the four signals come from the electrodes that you're mentioning. So people would wear an EEG cap, and that allows us uh, to record an electroencephalogram signal. On their chest, I place an ECG cable, so I get to record an electrocardiogram signal. Then on the computer on which we show them a sales presentation or a website or some other sort of corporate asset, an ebook, for example, people like to be into a thought leadership articles, uh, is an eye tracker. So um, we use that. Sometimes I'll ask people to wear the actual glasses, depending on the experiment. But you would want an eye tracking signal because um, people tend to look to where you where they think. So there is a connection between visual attention and cognitive processing. And also on their wrist and fingers, I use a GSR device, a galvanic skin response. And then the reason for that is because when you're watching TV or you're watching something on the computer or just in, in reality and you have a reaction to it, it doesn't have to be a positive reaction, but a reaction, which is why that affective component is so important your skin changes, or I should say the conductivity of your skin changes. So we're there to capture that with those uh, sensors. And the reason you need multiple signals is because if you only had one, like for instance, the eye tracker, you couldn't really be able to make 
um, solid inferences. Like if I knew that your customers are looking more in the upper left corner of your website versus the lower right or a sales presentation, it would be very hard to say it's because they're interested or because they're confused. That's why you need the extra signals to then make sense of, uh, of what's going on and primarily bypass self-reports. Because in the absence of all of this, you could ask a customer, what is it that attracted your attention or what is it that provoked a reaction or an emotion? And for most part, people will tell you because you're talking to intelligent people, they can make sense of almost anything. But quite often what we're noticing is that um, those self-reports are not reliable. So for instance, in that experiment I was telling you about, what is it that works better, a face-to-face, -face, a virtual, a hybrid, or over the phone? We ask people ahead of time, what do you normally prefer? Like if a vendor were to approach you with a solution, would you prefer to meet with them face-to-face, -face, virtually, over the phone? And they told us. And we found absolutely no match between their revealed preferences and what they actually enjoyed in the moment. So just because you said you prefer face-to-face, -face, it didn't mean that you didn't have a good time during the virtual meeting. All right. So you collect all that data. And then based on that, you can infer what the actual, you know, what people's actual reactions are and then characterize that. And, 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 exactly. find that and after each experiment, we, we would send a, a survey at uh, the 48 hour mark to see what people remember. And then we connect what was happening in the brain in the moment of with what was uh, memorable later on. And um, then we connect them to practical guidelines that can range from something very, very small and tactical to something that's a little bit broader. So, for instance, a tactical thing might be, should you sit or should you stand during a sales presentation that happens virtually? Well, it's better to stand if you are after um, impacting people's memories, but if you just simply want people to have a good time and you're establishing a relationship, then sitting is, uh, is more appropriate. Um, earlier before this call, we were talking about uh, attire. Um, I've done studies on how should people introduce themselves at the beginning of a sales presentation. So it could, um, it could apply to some of these small tactical things or something that is a little bit larger, such as how do you create unified memories and, uh, and drive consensus? So how should people introduce themselves at the beginning of the meeting? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the experimental studies, the experimental groups I had in that study included um, one person, like, so let's just say that you have you as a vendor who wants to present a solution to the customer, and there are three people on your side as a vendor and three people from the customer side. We did some preliminary studies just to even get to those average numbers, like is three a good one? And we figured mm -hmm. out that three is a fairly good and average one for both sides. And experimental group number one, one person, usually the seller, because it's his interest, right, to make this entire context feel good. Uh, he had a PowerPoint slide where he put everybody's pictures. So now we see three people from the vendor, three people from the other side. And he said, you can see who's part of the meeting and what their names and roles are in the interest of business. Let's just keep going because time is very short. So uh, PowerPoint slide number, group number one. Group number two was one person from um, the... Uh, seller group introduced everybody so we heard to uh, from one person and the job titles of uh, who was present group number three uh, we heard from every single person individually but only in terms of their names and titles and group four we heard everyone introduce themselves name title and some small paragraph in the sense of hi my name is joe I am a part of the IT team and I'm always looking for solutions uh, for our, our cybersecurity department because mm -hmm. XYZ. 
And um, my uh, hypothesis was that that group number two, where the seller introduces uh, people on his side and um, sometimes one person from the other side introduces everybody, that would have been a realistic one and a fairly speedy way to create introductions. I'm wrong about half of the time with my hypotheses. Uh, group number three was actually the successful one where you do invite people to say their name and their titles. As long as it's very short and it goes around the room, I would have to consider that to be dull. But in fact, it said just the right premise for the rest of the presentation, which of course would have included the solution. Carmen, this is this is great. I, I, I love to finish up. And actually, it's probably the ultimate test of this conversation, right? With this uh, three, two, one uh, idea, right? Three key takeaways, which I it's going to be really interesting to see like if people are thinking in their mind, okay, what are the three key takeaways if they've already done it based on all this cognitive science that uh, you've been exercising? Um, two books you would take to a desert island and you can't say impossible to ignore because I've packed that book already. Uh, and then one quote, uh, one of your favorite quotes or takeaways that, uh, that uh, kind of represents what we've been talking about. Ooh, okay, so let's think about these. Three key takeaways. Let's just wrap up everything under the umbrella of control your 10%. If you want to be a master storyteller, you want customers to make decisions in your favor, they can only make decisions based on what they remember. So make sure that that one main message is very clear in your mind. To control your 10%, we said, what are some points? Make sure that you're creating vivid images in people's minds and especially the context in which your story takes place and actions happen across time. For cognition, we are saying, make sure that, yeah, sure, you share the facts and don't be afraid to use some complexity. Remember the cauliflower? As long as you elaborate around the same core message, then you will be just fine adding the extra layers because the brain indeed synchronizes better with a complex stimulus versus a superficial one. And um, a third one, especially since we're talking about the why change story, would be to not be ignoring the affective component in this whole notion of memorable storytelling and controlling your 10%. The stronger the emotion, the stronger the likelihood of memory and what is science, but the increased chance that something is going to happen. And one of the strongest emotions you can create would be an element of surprise, like you thought your problem was this, but in fact, it is this other thing. So generating a pivoting point in people's minds and an unconsidered need revealing that will give you a very strong affective pillar. So those would be the, the three components um, for the, uh, the two books. I am um, reminded of two just recent books. Um, should we go? Uh, should we go fiction? Because our audiences might be primarily nonfiction. I'm imagining. Uh, just just recently, I read this book that's called Lessons in Chemistry, and um, I think our audiences might enjoy that. It, it is fiction, so if you're drawn to nonfiction, I guarantee a good time with that one. And um, I was also touched by this other fiction story that's called By Invitation Only. You might enjoy uh, that one as well. But if I had a choice, I may select this, um, this other book that somebody just recently introduced me to. I haven't finished it yet. So it's called uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. Have you heard of that? Yeah, of course, yeah. The, write, the writing is exquisite. And I'm humbled by that book because in the face of GP, Chad GPT, which I feel is muddling our relationship with writing, and I feel like the more we indulge it, the more uh, blurry things become when it comes to good writing, then the appreciation for something that indeed is good will be a, 
a, a classic example, and I feel like that book matches that. And for uh, a quote to uh, to finish this on, I was just uh, repeating this to someone just this uh, this morning. Would be um, giggle and give in. Our society is changing so much. Here we're talking about uh, AI and in particular Chat GPT. Um, our jobs may, uh, may never be the same from here on out, and that's fine. And um, one good attitude I feel is to giggle and give in. I love it. Well, it's data humanized, right? The humanized is in there for a real reason because I do think that uh, um, that's a that's a great way to land it because um, that human creativity and um, all the science and the context of it all comes down to, you know, how do you create a vivid memory in somebody's mind or use the right words? Well, it's still, still down to, still down to us. Right. So, uh, Carmen, thanks so much. It's always great talking to you. I think, uh, I learned a lot. I hope people listening, uh, have also learned a lot and, uh, and it was, I definitely giggled quite a bit. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. You're an inspiration to me, and uh, I've enjoyed this uh, this a lot. Awesome. Thank you very much, Carmen. Next, we'll hear from Takia Young, a graduate of Correlation One's Data Skills for All program. My name is Takia Young, engineer by training, program and project manager in practice, and growing data professionals. I'm a first-generation American a Trinidad and Tobago Indian descent. I spent my early years in New Jersey and in Trinidad and Tobago. And after graduating from Lincoln University of Pennsylvania, I spent most of my adult life in the Washington DC metro area. I'm currently working as an independent program and project manager with varied experiences across academia, the nonprofit world, and in the tech space. As a side note, my mother was a computer scientist. So I honestly take it as a privilege to grow up with the understanding of possibility and representation of being in this space. To be honest, it wasn't until I began really examining the numbers over 10 years ago and looking at the stats that I realized that being in this space was as unique as it was. I grew up with computers and having access to this world. So it wasn't odd to see a black woman in this space because that's all I knew. That said, I applied to the DS4A Empowerment Fellowship because I wanted to become a more data-driven problem solver and project manager. Ultimately, I'm working to provide data-driven solutions to historically black, brown universities and institutions around technology transfer and supporting black and brown innovators in commercializing their ideas. So I have an experience as a technology licensing manager and technology transfer officer in academia. In that capacity, I gained a better understanding of how to work with and evaluate intellectual property, license technology, and work with inventors and innovators at different stages of the commercialization process. While doing that work, I had the opportunity to work with black and brown inventors, but what I saw at the conferences and meetings while doing this work was that we were not in the room. That further solidified my desire to build capacity in the space for people of African descent as we're missing from every aspect of the field. Whether it was intellectual property, management, ownership, funding, we were really missing and I wanted to change that and I wanna do it with a data-driven approach. That leads me back to the DS4A Fellowship. What I truly enjoyed about the program is that the content and structure of the program allowed me to enhance my areas of strength and expand understandings in my area of growth. The level of support and resources exceeded my expectation. The program allowed us to embrace our growing pains as data scientists, and for many of us, including myself, we plant our feet as adult learners. Not only did the fellowship help me establish new skills like Python, data analysis, and data visualization, the program further highlighted the level of business strategy, data storytelling, and data-related skills and experiences I honestly never gave myself credit for prior to accepting the fellowship. Although I received the technical degree, 
and have over 15 years of professional experience, I did not receive specific training nor mentorship to support me in applying those skills for greater impact, specifically using the science that I was studying. I remember being a graduate student and a professor questioning my ability to be a scientist. He asked a lot of questions and said that I talked a lot about culture and people too much, and I did that too much to be an engineer. It shaped my interactions with them and experiences in the program. However, ultimately, I disagreed with him. See, I wasn't new to excellence. As I mentioned, my mother, along with several of her friends, were in tech. I also attended a historically Black university, Lincoln University, which was established in 1854. So that's over 160 years of genius. So I'm not new to excellence. I also have professors, colleagues, and friends from diverse backgrounds who exemplified excellence. What I believe is a part of excellence is the environment. We are all seeds, seeds of excellence. And so where we are planted matters. So when I explore new opportunities, including the DS4A fellowship, I look into how the program intentionally supports me as well as if I can show up fully as myself. I was pleasantly surprised by this program and I'm grateful that my showing up fully was accepted, welcomed and celebrated. I don't take that for granted. The conversations and topics we studied really helped to emphasize the commitment around diversity to shift not only who's looking through the lens and who's on the other side of the lens, but most importantly, who is designing the lens. The addition of this training enhanced my ability to solve real world problems using data, as well as help solve real world data challenges, as well as access challenging challenges. The access part is really, really important. And that excites me. And much gratitude to Correlation One on cultivating an impactful opportunity and much gratitude supporting Seeds of Excellence. I love Takia's point that if you think you're out of place, you're in the right place. Her story is so incredibly compelling. And here's three reasons why. Takia was an adult learner with 10 years of experience when she joined the program. And that experience informed her learning journey into a new domain of data skills. As Carmen mentioned, experiences matter just as much as the data itself. Takia's experience amplified her pre-existing data storytelling skills. DS4A's program allowed Takia to systematize and fully harness data storytelling skills that enable decision-making with her stakeholders. And then finally, despite growing up as a daughter of a computer scientist, Takia still experienced professional imposter syndrome, but through the support of her fellow learners and DS4A, she gained valuable data skills to complement her existing capabilities. So why does Takia's story matter? She was an adult learner with a great set of skills, but she still experienced imposter syndrome, which is a critical challenge for many professionals from marginalized or underrepresented groups. By completing the program, she enhanced her skills in data storytelling and visualization, along with a foundation in data literacy. Business leaders must find ways to tap into the unique talent like Takia's, who can communicate data effectively and enable smart decision-making for their stakeholders. We close with a weekly segment we call The Big Number. We heard from Dr. Carmen Simon about how our brains process stories to make decisions. And we also heard from Takia about how data storytelling was a critical skill that she improved through the DS4A program. So this week, our big number is 35,000. That's the number of decisions a person makes in one day. Now, how can business leaders ensure that their workforce makes great decisions that result in revenue growth? 
they've got to enable unique perspectives from stakeholders empowered with data storytelling skills and understand how that information impacts their decision makers. To do that, we need ubiquitous data literacy. We need data humanized. <laughs>